Hello and welcome. My name's Ben. I'm the CEO of Charlie HR, and this is the Culture Ops Podcast. We're the podcast that's trying to lift the lid on the challenging situations that affect your business and your culture on a daily basis. Let's get into it. Welcome back to another episode of the Culture Ops Podcast. I'm super conscious that the frequency of our episodes has slightly slowed down over the last couple of weeks, and I'm very sorry for that. Um, I took some holiday, and we've been working on another podcast project at Charlie HQ. So if you haven't subscribed to There's This Thing at Work yet, head over to wherever you get your podcasts and do just that. One of my biggest frustrations I have around the fast growth tech community here in London is that there isn't a lot of vulnerability, not enough honesty, and definitely not enough candor. So today, I'm very excited to have someone with me on the podcast that has always exhibited those traits, uh, and someone I've always admired personally for her style as uh, a leader within that community. So I'd like to welcome Alex Pledge, founder and CEO of Resi. Hello. Hi, Ben. How are you? I'm well, I'm well. Do I say MBE or do I not say MBE or how do you, how do you instruct that? I don't refer to the MBE anywhere, anywhere really because I feel like it makes me sound a bit like a wanker. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the only place I have it is on LinkedIn because I feel like if I ever like, you know, fail at this business, that's where I'm going to need that sort of star power to, to cinch me the next job. But, um, that credibility, yeah. <laughs> yes. Part of me still feels like someone's going to knock on the door one day and be like, uh, can we get that back, please? <laughs> like, yeah, definitely not the sort of character that should have an MBE. Uh, but so far, so good. You got it. You got it. So hang on to it. Um, <laughs> hey, so let's start by uh, you telling us a bit about, um, give me the quick whistle top stop um, tour of your story. Obviously, I know it, but listeners maybe won't. Um, the businesses that you founded and a bit of that journey that you've been on and maybe a bit about what Resi does. Okay, that's a lot um, for whistle stop. So let me try do this in years. So <clears throat> I met my co-founder, Jules, who's been my CTO and co-founder in both businesses in 2006 at Accenture. We lived together on our first project and we used to have this joke that we'd always start a business together. Fast forward 2011, um, Jules had kind of become disillusioned with corporate life and decided that she was going to start that business. And we kept tossing ideas around. There's a, a whole funny story in there about pianos and wisteria, but ultimately what we decided to start was um, a, like a marketplace for local services, you know, so like Amazon, you buy anything you want, you know, where, where can you get a piano teacher or a, a babysitter or a gardener or, or a cleaner or whatever it might be. And this was like, you know, this is circa 2011. So this is, bef- this is just about the time the iPhone 3 is coming out. So like before the real dawn of the smartphone, before you'd heard of an accelerator or we had Silicon Roundabout, it was very kind of, we were still quite analog. We were still, you know, Nokia brick type world. Um, so anyway, uh, being like all good consultants, we thought we were just going to kind of write a business um, case, do a nice PowerPoint, get some money from angels a la Dragon's Den and um, get it built in India because neither of us could code and we'd certainly never done a business before. Anyway, lo and behold, that doesn't work. Um, so Jules actually bought a book. She taught herself to code. Um, that scared me because she then quit a job and I was like, what are you doing? Um, I'm not leaving my job, my very safe corporate job. Um, but sort of the story evolves and, we ended up getting into tech stars or what, what was then um, seed, 
Jesus, what was it? Springboard that became Techstars. First first cohort in London. First people to ever kind of live inside Google Campus. Um, And off we went. Six months later, um, you know, we'd raised a little bit of money, but we... um, yeah, we did. We'd raised a little bit of money, but we weren't really getting any traction, and we sort of we started to run out of money by the end of the year, and that's when we stopped trying to do everything, and we just started um, looking at cleaners because that's what loads of people were searching for on the website. Um, anyway, we ended up pivoting to Hassle.com, which is a marketplace for local cleaners. It was the biggest in Europe till it was acquired by a German competitor called Helpling in 2015. Jules and I took that from zero in revenue to 12 million in about two years. We were in Ireland, across the UK, uh, in France, big mistake. And then we acquired a company in Germany, which is how we got on the German competitor's radar. We were backed by a couple of VCs. And yeah, we sold in 2015 for quite a substantial amount of money, which was lovely. We said we'd never do it again. Um, I went off to raise my six-month, seven-month-year-old child, which I'd had in the middle of all this mess. Um, and Jules bought a puppy and started to play tennis. And we were happy for like all of six months. And then Index called us and said, do you want to come and hang out in the office? Which literally meant like looking at deal flow. And that was really interesting. And um, while we were there, I decided to do an extension on my home in that was in Stratton Hill. I just sold it last Friday. Very exciting. Um, and it was just really painful. Like it, it, there wasn't any one thing that kind of sticks out as like a horror story. It was just, you know, spreadsheets and lots of visits to architect offices and visits to mine and lots of people to manage. I didn't really know what a structural engineer did or why I needed one. Everything seemed to take a long time. It was very analog. And I was like, how is this possible? You know, like in this world of 2016, 2017, like how are we still like living in that era? Anyway, Jules felt the same. And um about three months later, we had a prototype. Um, we called it Build Path. We do like a pivot, Jules and I. Um, anyway, so it was called Build Path. Ended up pivoting to Resi. Um, and now we're the largest um, residential architect in the UK. Um, but we don't just do architecture. We also find you your builder from our um, marketplace of builders that we work with, which is highly curated, as well as all of the, the, the bits and pieces you need to get started on site. So structural engineer, party wall, building control, we do your planning. Um, and we also finance. So we became FCA regulated in March of this year, just in time for lockdown. That was very fun. Um, and so the whole idea is a, is a nuts to um, nuts uh, cradle to grave solution for ideation. So Resi is an all singing, all dancing, um, salute, uh, vertically integrated platform for home renovation and home building. So we also do um, new builds and it's been going nearly four years. Amazing. And in that time, two businesses um, uh, are both quite different businesses, I, I, would, I would say, and that, that's to what I see from the outside. They are. How has your perspective on company culture changed in that time? That is a really good question. Um, so I think like with, so I think I've always had, um, I think culture has always been the most important thing for me. And the reason I say that is um, I often make this joke that like I didn't really care about cleaning and, and I didn't really care about consumers. What I actually really cared about was building a workplace that people wanted to come to. And that, I, you know, was very much derived from the fact that um, at Accenture, we kept winning this best place to work for women. Um, but what I actually meant was it was the best place to go and get a paid, paid year's maternity leave. Coming back to work was incredibly difficult. Um, and there wasn't very much flexibility built into the working week or the working day. I mean, your wife's a consultant. This will ring true to you, especially if you're on client site. 
Um, and actually, as a working parent, consulting is tough. And I felt that a lot of big companies, especially, they, they have this spiel, you know, this, so, this corporate social responsibility spiel about how much they do for the environment and for their staff. And a lot of it's just hot air. And so Jules and I were really, really passionate about going and building that company that everybody wanted to work for. You know, that company that you like, you work for Google. Oh, my God. Maybe not now. Google's evil. But, you know, at the time, it was that kind of like you wanted to work there for all the perks and the fact that you felt you were on a mission and you were contributing to something broader and so that's what we really started to set out to do at Hassel so we had equal maternity and paternity pay we had flexible working you know we we in you know we we hired really off the charts characters from from deprived backgrounds because we felt that they they had a real like je ne sais quoi like to the that kind of approach to work um and it was amazing and like we built an amazing culture and I think that's testament to the fact I've probably got about a fifth of my staff have returned from wherever they were across London in, in businesses to, to return to Resi. Um, and, and I think that my thing about work is everyone talks about work-life balance. I think this is where we've really, really gone wrong. Um, everyone talks about having to have balance in their life, but actually you don't really need balance on a week-to-week basis. You need just sort of broad balance overall. And so I don't believe in work-life balance. I just believe that there's life and work forms a big part of that. And therefore you need to enjoy what you do. You need to want to go to work. And we had a leadership retreat recently. um, And I was just talking about sort of like, do people like working at Resi? And a lot of, you know, not Jules, because she's my co-founder, but all my leadership team were just like, all of our, my friends hate their job, but I absolutely love it. So I think we're kind of getting close to to achieving um, that that sort of work environment that people do enjoy. However, I guess what I've learned differently this time, I'm so sorry I talk a lot, um, is that as well as creating a really good culture that people enjoy and they want to contribute to and they feel like very mission driven, you also have to have a culture of performance and accountability. And I think we lost that hassle we, we made the same mistake here at Resi again, and, and it's only been in the last sort of two years, maybe a year and a half, that we've really sort of tried to instill that culture of excellence as well as making it a good place to work. So I think that's the big difference is I think there's got to be a, there's got to be kind of a, a bit of each in there. It can't just be all one one way or one way the other. If it's all about performance, then it, it becomes a really uh, not particularly amazing place to work. So, yeah, I think... It, you, if you're all about performance, then you crush people. But if you're, you know, you're all about kind of culture and balance and, and doing things differently, um, you can lose some of that accountability, which ultimately ends up eroding the culture that you're building anyway. Yeah, and I'm really, and by the way, I never apologise for talking lots because everything you say is useful and interesting and 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 well thought out and and you know comes from years of of seeing and understanding this stuff. No, because George and Karina are just sat here going, "What is she waffling on about again?" It's all great. It's all great. It's it's, it's a gold mine. <laughs> um, so, looking at the two businesses, were there any other clear cultural differences as you look at? Hassel and Resi. So you talked a little bit about that kind of that slight valley that it's very easy to fall into, which is you know uh, a great place to work and high performance organisations. They don't actually need to be different things. They can they can come together. And I want to come back to that. But were there any other differences? Yeah. So the biggest difference and the hardest difference that I've found to overcome is Hassel was a culture of extroverts. And so the, the vast majority of people that worked there were extroverted. 
Um, and Resi is hugely introverted and I really struggle with that because, you know, an extrovert loves the hoorah, big inspiration, public acknowledgement, response to targets, response to, you know, pressure, um, leans on each other, asks for help, puts ahead head above the parapet, kind of wants to be seen to get on. Introverts do do any of that. There's no energy um, which I struggle with as an introvert. They don't like to be publicly recognised. Um, they, they need lots of quiet and lots of space for deep work, which you would imagine in architecture and technology. So it's basically like 70% of this organisation is introverted and I've really had to work hard to adapt my style, but also to build a different culture, one that, those, that introverted people want to be a part of because the big hurrah does not work. <laughs> it's just sometimes, I mean, when we first started, I used to literally feel like I was banging my head against a wall in all hands because it was like you could hear a pin drop. Just no feedback, no engagement, no one wanted to kind of, you know, say or do anything. And it's just really different. How long did it take you to realise that that wasn't, that wasn't that people weren't engaged, that was just the requirement of the business meant that you had to hire a different uh type set um of individuals then have i really realized it i'm not sure because obviously like you you know what it's like with you kind of have your preferred mode of operation and then you have your learned set of behavior so introversion for me is a learned behavior i've had to kind of like piece it together and 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 so when i'm on a good day and i'm buoyant and i'm not stressed and i've got lots of space to to do the work that i feel is necessary I can flex and when I'm stressed or, you know, the numbers are going in the, right, the wrong direction or, um, you know, some things happened where the best version of me is not there. I still fall back on, on the extroversion tendencies. And, but actually most of my, most of my management team is introverted, which is good because actually they're able to kind of say, you know, you need, you, you're doing that thing again. You, you know, you, you're not being urgent anymore, Alex. You're now being disruptive. So it's, yeah, you have to have those checks and balances built in because people revert to type. They always revert to type. And so you just have to have a support network around you that goes, you reverted to type. You need to step back um, and alter your style. So, yeah, I'd say it's a work in progress. And think about what the people people need. And I think understanding that leadership journey and, and crafting a culture is something that's always ongoing. It's something that's always happening. Yeah. What, one of the biggest differences that I think I feel like I observe about Resi and Hassel, and I'm going to say some things, and you can tell me if you think I'm wrong uh, or if those are incorrect assumptions. Is like I feel like at Hassel you had lots more outside influence. There was maybe uh, more investors than you have at Resi. Uh, is that true? No, we got more. You got more. I just I just don't play the game anymore. So, I don't, you know, I, we've actively stayed below the radar for, of all the like tech nonsense and the, you know what I mean, you know what I mean, don't you? The 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 kind of the events and the tech crunches and the, oh, just all, we just, just, I just decided a long time, I think it was like 2017, I sort of looked back and I was like, there's going to be a market correction. I'm not sure when it's going to be, but when it, when it happens, it will be the technology companies that are the villains. 
hate to say I was right, but like, look at what's going on now. You know, America on, on about breaking up Facebook and Google because they're antitrust. Um, and I just didn't want to be part of that narrative because um, I'd had a little bit of a taste of it with Hustle and the whole gig economy and the um, zero hours contracts and what are your obligations to to your Uber drivers or your Hustle cleaners or wherever it was. And I, I, and, and I know that like there will be people listening to this that will take a step back and they'll be like, well, you were just the same as Uber, you were just the same as Deliveroo. But I don't feel like we really were like we genuinely were trying to do something that was better for cleaners than being in the black market and not knowing who they were going to go clean for and being paid cash in hand and having no one to account for them whereas actually delivery drivers and taxi drivers they already had an existing industry that uber and delivery went into and disrupted cleaning didn't really have that anyway i digress but i think the reason that most people think that so a lot of people think that res is small so they, they think that they can't believe it when i'm like yeah we're like 100 people and they're like what where did this come from or that we're the largest in the uk like how um you know or that we have no we've never visibly raised funding um and it's because i just was like i, I realized with hassle that we were never really a vc backable company when you broke down the economics and the trajectory that marketplaces go on the only way that you can be backable by VC is to subscribe to, you're going to be number one, you're going to take as much money as you possibly can, and you're basically going to subsidize the entire marketplace for as long as it takes to consolidate and, and you kill everybody else, which is essentially what Airbnb did. I mean, I like Airbnb, but that is essentially what they've done. And it's kind of now happening with Uber. You know, you've kind of had... Um, you had what Halo merged with Damila Chrysler, and then Cap- that spun out Captain, and then that's become Free Cart, Free something or other, and now Uber's coming in to buy it. So you'll you'll eventually see that 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 model it becomes a monopoly, and I don't think a monopoly is a good thing. I think competition is. So we decided this time that we wanted to build a business that went for sustainable growth rather than rapid growth, and um, to build a household brand that would outlast us. So one that would be around for 10 to 15 years, if not longer. Um, One that uh, didn't have any um, multiple classes of shares. We've got one share at Resi. Um, And one that I had complete control over. So if I decide I'm going to flatline growth, I'm going to flatline growth. And investors can't influence that. I think yeah, I, I, Resi's not really a VC backable company. It, it's going to kind of grow sort of not linearly, but not like that either, because it's not a SaaS product. And so I just, I, I right size the financing. And, and what comes with that, I guess, is um, a reluctance to put myself in the public eye as much because um, with Hassel, you know, I saw all the downsides to that. The fact that we encouraged so much competition, the fact that I didn't feel like I was running my own business anymore, the fact that we didn't innovate on the product or the business for like two years after we took the investment and so I think we learned from the bad stuff and we basically tried to make sure that we did it differently this time and how has that affected the culture that you've built because on one side you've got uh hassle where maybe you were drawn into playing a bit more of that game you were part of more of that kind of ecosystem and community and all the kind of like you talk about the things you get drawn into, the events, the um, the talks, the this, the that, uh, and on Resi, you've got more control. A lot more of the direction is directed by you and Jules, and 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 with the and the route you want to go in. Like, how has that changed the culture that you've built? So it's just there's just a lot less pressure. <laughs> it's just not high pressured. 
at all. Um, yeah, of course, you know, we've got targets and, and like anyone, we want to do well. But like our main target is to break even and be profitable. And so we, we, we run to an EBITDA. And so we make decisions based on the cost benefit rather than is this going to get us more, you know, is this going to get us more growth? Um, and, and that's, and you know, some of our investors really struggle with that. They re- So during the pandemic, for example, um, obviously we did the necessary cost cutting, although there wasn't that much to cut, to cut. But then following that, what we decided to do was we'd been waiting to replatform the business away from one CAD technology to a different one. And the other one was going to improve our productivity by at least 50%. And we needed to deploy a new operating model. So I was like, right, let's just do it. So April, you know, that's what we did. And it's been really painful. But because of that, I held growth consistent. We only we only sold to 50 customers in um, April, May and June intentionally. The sales team were going nuts about it because they're like, you're basically telling us to stop doing what's natural. But the whole point was we needed to create breathing space to allow that change to take place. That would never, ever have gotten through Hassel's board. No. So not only was I flatlining growth and pushing through an agenda like that, but I was also investing a million pounds in a pandemic. Like, <laughs> like, let's see. Let's see if I, you know, played a blinder or whether I've like sealed our fate. But um, yeah, it's that, it's that sort of let's let's make decisions for the for the betterment of the business rather than the betterment of your shareholders. And I think that's the that is the critical difference, I think. And do you think your team see that and are aware of that and benefit from that? Yes, I think at leadership and management levels. Um, do the guys on the ground, that you know, our architects or our engineers or our data scientists, do they? No, I don't think so because they've never known it to be different. They've just always known it to be this way. I, I think definitely the guys that came from Hassel do um, because – you know, they've got hassle and, and now here to compare. But I think I'm not sure the the the, the guys that were not with us at Hassel or that, that are not close to the decision making do really because um yeah, they moan about other stuff. <laughs> what you're describing is, I guess, a business where you have prioritized control, prioritized ownership, prioritized being able to make decisions with the philosophies that make sense to you right and yeah like you say if you want a flatline growth you're going to flatline growth and and I, and I guess when it comes to culture you know I, I believe that your culture kind of defines how your team operate and how they perform right yeah like what is the effect on what is the effect on performance and and we talked a little bit at the beginning about high performance organization and you've now been part of two like how do they stack up against each other when it comes to performance well for one we're close to profitability which we were never with hassle we are also uh, far greater revenues than we ever had with hassle um it's a much more profitable model and in terms of like what how does it translate into performance the only thing i can really say to you is um an average, a typical architecture practice doing residential projects will probably do somewhere, I'm going to be really generous because anyone that's in the architecture field that listens to this will shout at me on Twitter if I'm not, because that happens a lot. Um, you know, the average will do 15 to 30, let's say, top side pr- projects. We do 150 a month. So it, it's just, you know, we do 1,400 a year. There's just no one has ever reached that volume before. Um, so, I mean, that, you know, that is high performance. 
Um, and, we, and we do it for, you know, I'm not going to say it's cheap, but it's really good value. We're, we are cheaper. Um, I hate that though. I never, it's just not a USP that we use, but like we deliver really good quality design much quicker and, and for a much more affordable price. So I think, yeah, I mean, we wouldn't be able to do that, would we, if we didn't have a good culture? Because the thing, you know, you have to, there's, you can browbeat an organization into submission and ride it hard. And after about six months, it crumbles um, and you burn people out. And we don't, our, our attrition rate here is really low. Knowing what you know now, would you have done anything different at Hassel? Yes. No, I would never have taken the money. Because those sorts of businesses, if you look at Gumtree or you look at, um, uh, oh God, what did guy used to run? Service Magic. You've probably never heard of Service Magic, but it's actually a really profitable business in the US and here. I can't remember what it's called here. Those sorts of businesses where you're trying to offer multiple things um, in a marketplace format, they have to grow organically. Like they, it's not that they don't grow fast. You just can't artificially pump them the way that you might do um, a SaaS project. You know, a SaaS product, you know, like it's like you get to your B round and it's like you've, you've, you've established your product market fit. You've worked out who your customer base is. You know, if you pour X in, you get Y out the other end. So you've got and you raise your mega round and that's, you just ramp it. Anything that involves a service or a person doesn't just doesn't behave that way um and that was my biggest learning is that CACs go up quality goes down and the whole thing becomes harder so the more you try and ramp it the harder you make it for yourself and actually if you just if you just grind it out year on year on year you will end up after 15 years with a mega business it's just what vc is going to give you 15 years Hmm. so more control higher performance I love it. More control. I sound like some sort of like megalomaniac, which is so true. No, but it's it's control. It's autonomy. You know, it's 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 being able to take the business in the direction that you want to take it. Do you prefer the culture that you built at Resi compared to the one you had at Hassel? Yeah, definitely. I loved Hassel. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I was younger then, so I was like thirty-one or something when we were doing Hassel and. I had a lot more juice in the tank for, you know, partying out late at night. And it was a really young organization and we had a lot of fun. But if I just take it on a, you know, on a business by business, this is a much more sensible business, much bigger market, much more scope for, for really changing something, like really fundamentally making a difference in a consumer's life. How quickly you can get a cleaner, you know? It's, it's just not, is it? But I, I, and so there's two things I should probably say. Is one, I built Resi this way, which because it's in completely my bias. If Alex Chesterman got hold of my business, there is a chance that he would like explode it and it'd be worth billions already. It's just it's some it's just not the way I want to run a business. So this business runs the way that I want to, to work and the way Jules wants to work. So I need to say that because people will listen to this and be like, oh, I'm definitely not taking VC money and I'm definitely not doing that. But it's not what I'm saying. I think though, if you're gonna stay long term in a business, and let's be really honest, most businesses take at least seven years to exit. You need to really enjoy what you're doing. And I do. I love what I'm doing. Um and the other oh, what was my other point? It was quite it was quite on the money and I can't remember what I was going to say. Anyway, I did want to ask you a question. You you basically started off giving me some observations about what you think about Resi. And one was that you think we're, we're, 
there's a lot less external influence. What were your other things? Because I'm always really fascinated by how people see us. No, I think, I mean, you said this before you, before we started recording, which was that, you know, you said that you think I run and we run our business at Charlie a bit like you and Resi and, you know, more focused on impact and control and profitability and, and those sorts of things. And I think, um, my view of Resi and my view of you in this experience is that it's been much more on your terms. Yeah. That's what I was going to say, Ben. You've just hit the nail on the head. It is been on my terms. And had I not done hassle and had I not engaged in the hype and done the rounds and, you know, blown it up as, a, you know, as, a, as, a, as this amazing business and really kind of epitomised the tech startup journey of, of, you know, circa 2013, 2014, I wouldn't have been afforded this opportunity. You know, raising money for us was super easy for Resi because it's Alex and Jules. They've done this before and they, they got an exit, which is really rare. And guess what? They're women. Oh, you know, tick in the box. And so, like, I am very grateful for that experience with Hassel because it's really shaped me and it's shaped this business, but it's also afforded me opportunities that I just wouldn't have got otherwise. Um, so it might have been a little unfair to say that I wouldn't have taken the money. Um, but, you know, like if you play out in hindsight, that's, that was the big that was the big defining factor of that company. But what, you know, sitting here listening to you, the thing that I am taking away is that how you run your organization, how you run your business is a choice. And how that relates to culture is huge because you can choose to do it on your own terms. And the culture that you're going to create is going to be a lot more legitimate, um, a lot more authentic, and in that instance has the potential to be much more high-performing because people really feel like this is a place where we have ownership, autonomy, and what we're trying to do and what we're trying to achieve. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a really important thing because I think we can get swept up into building businesses and building cultures that maybe aren't that authentic to who we are as leaders. Yeah. And that's quite dangerous. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. I, I I guess, I think the thing that Jules and I had said to that is like, I don't think there really was any other way for us. And what I mean by that is, you know, um, I don't really know how to be any, whenever I try <laughs> to, you know, rein it in or um, do it a different way, it, it's really obvious. <laughs> as in like, People will be like, what's wrong? Are you all right? Um, and, and so I just can't, like, I can only be who I am. And I'm just really lucky that, you know, I came of age in a time when um, being authentic is, is, is kind of the holy grail. Um, I think if Jules and I had tried to do it any other way, it would just, it would just come across disingenuous. Um, and I'm just really lucky that the company does tolerate me because, I mean, I'm HR's worst nightmare. Um, so, you know, um, and that's one of the problems that we've got now is, you know, as we get bigger and we get more professional, uh, you know, Jules and I actually really rail against that. And, and so our COO really has to, and our FD, they really have to work hard sometimes to be like, no, no, it's really important that we take these steps, that we, you know, we impact this, that we deploy it in this fashion. Because Jules and I are just still those kind of, you know, geeky 30-year-olds that are just like slapdash. Oh, that'll do. Fine. Just send it out. And you can't do that when it's th when it's this size business. And and it's it's quite hard for us. It's definitely a balance. So I want to wrap on one last question, which is um, what are the 
two or three pieces of advice that you would give to someone, a founder, someone in HR, someone running people within an organization, a CEO, who's trying to think about how to craft their company culture? God, you love the tough questions. Um, well, I mean, I think I think culture comes from the top down. So I, I, don't, I don't think... Um, if you're a HR person and you're thinking about culture and you don't get your CEOs buying, then you may as well just pack up and go home is the first piece of advice. So whatever you do, you have to get alignment across the top tier of the company. Otherwise, it'll just fail. And I think um, I think you have to take people on a journey. So, you know, human beings, like humans buy stories. It's, it's why, you know, we still know songs that... that from the 18th century it's because they're passed down from generation to generation fables narratives stories it's what we love so I don't I never get when companies don't connect that with what they're trying to tell their people which is tell them a story you know take them on a journey make you know help them buy into that story but tell it as a story Uh, I think that's the second piece of advice Um, and I think the third piece of advice is culture changes at sizes so Having an, a good culture, uh, sub 25 people, that's easy, right? Because you can control the narrative. The communication channels are really open. Everybody knows each other. You probably all sit together. You get to 100 people. Um, some people, well, I know. I know everyone's name at Resi, believe it or not. I still do because I make, I, I make an, an, a real effort to get to know everybody. But I'd say probably 50% of the organization are terrified of me. Not because I think I don't think I'm a particularly terrifying person. <laughs> I think I'm relatively approachable, but because I carry the title of CEO. So it doesn't matter what sort of person you are, just by having that title, you will be unapproachable. So what I say in a meeting here doesn't always go down to the bottom. So you get this 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 communication break at every point in your hierarchy, and that becomes incredibly difficult to manage. So what you have to do at 25 people versus what you do at 100 versus what you do at 500, they're very, very different things. Um, and that story has to change and it has to adapt. And the tools that you use have to change. But what you need to constantly do is becoming aware of those break points. So knowing that as you approach 100, this is going to happen. And then we know as we get get to 150 there's going to be another break as well and you've got to try and take people with you by getting them to you know getting them to buy in but also to feel that they're contributing to how that narrative changes did I just speak a lot of tosh <laughs> no, no your po- the points that you made I'm just going to highlight them for you uh, culture starts at the top you've got to tell a story and be aware for where the break points are because um if you're not aware, they're going to hit you and they're going to hit you hard. And on that note, I'm going to wrap up uh, today's episode. I need to say a big thank you to Alex for joining us today. Thank you so much, mate. You are so wise and um, I always enjoy our conversations. Oh, Ben, thank you. Love you lots. You know I do. Mwah. <laughs> Appreciate it. Um, I've got to thank Mel, our producer, behind the glass for keeping the show on the road. To all of you listening along, wherever you are, really, really appreciate you joining us today and, and being with us. Remember, if you've got an issue you'd like us to discuss, drop us a line. I'm at Gateley on Twitter and we are at Join Charlie. We look forward to seeing you again next week. I've been Ben Branson Gateley, your host, and this has been the Culture Ops Podcast.